0: What I want you to do as we begin is put a finger in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you will, and then turn back to the book of Ezekiel chapter 9. So 1 Peter 4. Actually, if your finger fits between 4 and 5, that's the place you want it to be in 1 Peter. And then turn quickly to Ezekiel chapter 9. And the reason I want to do this tonight is because I remind you the best commentary on scripture is scripture. So turning back to Ezekiel chapter 9, understand that what's happening right here is we're between 593 and 586 BC when Ezekiel, the prophet, is in exile, went with the exiles five, to, four to five years probably before Ezekiel chapter 9 took place. He was in Babylon with the exiles out of Judah. And there in Babylon, he was given a profound vision of judgment. Judgment that was going to befall Jerusalem, back in the land of Judah. And he shares this judgment in Ezekiel chapter 9. And I want to begin in verse 1. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case, or literally a scribal inkhorn, that was there at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So they're in that, that inner court of the, of the temple where the altar itself is, the altar of sacrifice. Verse 3 says, Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been, which would be above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, moving out now to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the inkhorn or the writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, that is the six with the shattering weapons, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity, and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women, But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Then down in verse 11 it says, Then behold, the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case, or the inkhorn, he reported saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. This chapter in Ezekiel is wild. As a vision. And remarkable in terms of what is really taking place. What's really going on here. And I'll give you three things really quickly just to note. Three Hebrew words that are used here. One is the word mark. The one with the inkhorn, the one with the with the scribal note there, the writing case at his loins, was to go through the city and put a mark on all of the foreheads of those who were righteous, of those who were actually following God at the time, those who were believing in the Lord and trusting in Him in Jerusalem. And so this this man, this seventh man, not one of the six executioners, but this seventh man goes and begins to put marks on people, and the word mark in the Hebrew is tov. It's actually just a Hebrew letter. The letter Tav, which if you look at it, is a cross. So this man was told to go throughout Jerusalem and put the sign of the cross on the foreheads of those who were trusting the Lord. The man with the inkhorn at his loins, I believe, was Jesus. I believe a, a pre-incarnate appearance, a Christophany of, of Jesus moving throughout Jerusalem and putting the sign of the cross because He is the one who saves by the sign of the cross. Amen? So that's one thing to note. The second thing to note is fascinating to me and it is the word temple. It's not temple. Well, it, it is. It, it, it means the temple, but it's the word we've talked about somewhat recently, bayit, House. So in verse 6 it says, so they started with the elders who were before the house. Keep that in mind. Finally, the phrase executioners, all the way back in verse 1, executioners, pakudah in the Hebrew, is actually overseers. 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 So in this chapter we have a picture of Jesus going out and saving putting a mark of the cross on those who would be saved. We have these overseers of the Lord moving throughout the city bringing about judgment and they start with the elders of the house. Turn quickly to 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 because that is what I believe was on Peter's mind as he wrote these words. 1 Peter 4:17 for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Well, that's Ezekiel 9. It is time for judgment to begin with the household, the oikos in the Greek, but it's the word house, and it's the same word that sometimes is translated temple, translated house, translated here household, the oikos of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, judgment goes out to those who are following Jesus, who have entrusted their souls to Him. The judgment goes out and we are seen as those with the mark of the cross that is on our lives. It begins with us. Discipline, even suffering as we've been reading through 1 Peter. Challenges, difficulties, even hardships. But it's not judgment unto condemnation. It's a judgment for discipline and for sanctification. To grow us up in the Lord and for another purpose we'll get to in a little bit. But if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is, those who do not have the mark of the cross on their lives. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Since judgment must always begin with God's house. Peter now turns in chapter 5 to the elders, the overseers, the shepherds of the spiritual household of living stones. The living stones being fit together that are being built up into a a holy temple where spiritual sacrifices can take place by a, a holy priesthood. And as we're being fitted together, God has set in place overseers. Who, by the way, are not to be executioners. (laughs) It's not the role of an elder, a shepherd, an overseer. And Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore... See, we had to start back before because he said therefore. So because of this, of this understanding that judgment must begin here. There must be a judgment. There must be discipline. There must be oversight of the household of God. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder... And witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Peter uses three descriptive words here for one leadership role. And this is important to understand. And we've actually looked at this a few times. We've talked about this over the years. There's one role of leadership. Aside from the leadership of Christ over his church. One role of leadership in the church. But three different designations or descriptions of that one role, Peter uses all three three interchangeably here. He exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. And those are the three words that we apply that we think of. Elders is presbyteros or presbyteros, and it's where we get the word Presbyterian, and it means one who is older, who has more experience, who has more wisdom. So an elder designates someone who has the wisdom to oversee, the wisdom to lead. And then he uses the word shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. Well, shepherd is poimano there. And poimano means to feed, uh, to teach, to tend. It's the same word, and I'm sure Peter is thinking about this, that Jesus said to Peter on the beach there at the Galilee, John 21, when he says, Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Well, the word tend is shepherd. It's poimano. So the shepherding aspect of, of leading in a church. And then the third word is exercising oversight. And that's episkopao From the word episkopos, which is an overseer. And that's the responsibility of managing. But all three of these responsibilities, that is wisdom and experience, feeding and teaching, and management is all one role. We've broken it up in the church over 2,000 years to have bishops who oversee, elders who oversee, you know, and we mix it all up like that. We have pastors that are separate from elders or bishops. Well, biblically speaking, they're one and the same. Paul does the same thing Peter does right here. He combines all three as well. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, speaking to the elders of Ephesus, he tells them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Elders be overseers who shepherd shepherds, overseers, elders, all three again, interchangeable. And so Peter is speaking to this one specific group of leaders who are to have some wisdom and experience and maturity, elders. And they are to oversee and manage the fellowship or the the larger church. And they are to do so through the act of shepherding, of caring, of, of feeding. We don't always agree with our leaders. Perhaps you've been in that place. Actually, I doubt any of you, but I know some people in church sometimes don't like decisions that their church leadership makes. We saw this all the way back with Israel. This is human nature. It's something that I just get. I understand. I know it goes on, even here at the bridge. Shocking. That there is grumbling in the tent. You know, the front door closes and the husband says, can you believe they're doing that? I wouldn't, if I was, you know, I wouldn't. And and the grumbling, I I get that happens. And I understand that sometimes people don't like the decisions that shepherds or elders or leaders make. They look at it and I could have made a better choice. Or I don't think that's the right way to go. Hopefully, we understand that like it or not, this is God's design for the church. It's the way He does it. It's the way He set it up. And there's a reason for it that is vital to our faith. God has determined that judgment and discernment and protection be there for His household. And He's called upon human agents to do it. And trust me, there are times where I myself, even growing up in the church, there were many times where I was the one grumbling behind the closed door. There were many times, especially as a young pastor, and as a youth pastor, decisions were made that I just, they have no idea what they're talking about, and I go home, you know. And then I come across passages like Hebrews 13, verse 17, where the Hebrew pastor says, Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And I'd read that and go, Yeah, but, but but the Hebrew pastor can't possibly know these guys were going to make that decision. Or they were going to take the church that direction. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And there's something of human nature that does that. But there is a reality here again that God set up shepherd, leaders, overseers, elders for His church. He did it. So rather than grumble about it, maybe the better question is Why? What What's it for? Why do we have them? Now here at the bridge, we use the term shepherds more than we use elder or bishop, although the funny hats could be enjoyable from time to time, but we don't use elder or bishop so much. We use shepherd because primarily it reminds those who are shepherds that we're not to think highly of ourselves. We're just shepherds. You know, It it focuses on what the role, I believe, the primary role of a leader in a church fellowship should be, and that's a pastoral role. A role of caring, a role of feeding, a role of praying for and tending to the larger church fellowship. So we go with shepherds. We could be called elders, it would be biblical. We could even be called managers or bishops, and it would be biblical. But, notice Peter as he starts out here, He gives credentials for why he has the right to talk to the leaders now of these scattered churches. He says, note, I exhort you as your fellow elder. So first off, he is a a fellow elder. And then secondly, he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. That's huge. I mean, that, that right there is almost enough to say, okay, I get it. I'll listen to you. A witness of the sufferings. Now, mind you, it was from afar. In fact, you know in the four Gospels, Peter is not listed as being at the cross. He was in the courtyard denying Jesus three times. You know, He followed along with the entourage. He saw what took place. Was he ever really at the cross? The closest we get is a statement in Scripture that all the rest were watching from a distance. So perhaps Peter was among all the rest. The only one of the apostles named as being right there with an eyeshot of Jesus at the cross was John, as Jesus would say to his mother, Mary, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He's the only one that was there. Was Peter there? Well, he witnessed the sufferings. So again, perhaps from a distance, he in fact did witness the sufferings of Christ. And he says, and I like this, a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. How do you partake of something that's going to be revealed? You know, it's like me saying, I'm a partaker of dinner when I get home tonight. Partaker now of the dinner that... Well, Peter got a preview. You know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Jesus glorified. However, I really think he is leaning toward a before and after description here. Before, I, I saw the sufferings of Christ. After, I will be a partaker. Because the word partaker can be future, it can be present, it, it, it speaks of both. I will be a partaker with you of the glory to be revealed, just as I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ that happened. The glory to be revealed and the sufferings. Remember we've been looking at this. The sufferings on a mountain. Mount Moriah. The glory on another mountain. All of that. Remember that Peter said all the way back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person of time or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Sufferings and the glories. And here he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings and a partaker of the glories. He's back on this theme again sufferings and glories and as I talked about a couple of weeks ago we are in the in-between and I made that comparison and I want to return to it just for a moment here because a question was raised about it and that is where do you find that in the Old Testament someone asked I heard you talking about these two mountains and and where do you find that well think with me just for a a brief moment I compared the two uh, events that is the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow to those two mountains. To Mount, uh, to Mount Moriah, where the temple was, where the cross was erected, where Jesus died, and then to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascended and we're told He will return again. Two mountains. And if you recall, if you were here that night, and, and the question may have come from someone who was just listening online because you couldn't see what I was doing, but I was describing two mountains, and on the one side of one mountain, if you're this side of Mount Moriah and you're looking at it, you may be able to see the Mount of Olives behind it, but what you can't see is the valley, the space in between. Suffering's here, right? Glory's here, Mount Moriah here, the Mount of Olives here, and in between is the Kadron Valley in Jerusalem. And I shared with you that night, it stood in that valley, and you can look both directions, but if you're only on the one side, if you're on the west side of Mount Moriah, you don't see the valley. The prophets couldn't see the valley. The prophets could not see the church age. It was confusing to them because they had images and pictures and visions and prophecies by the Spirit of Christ that there's going to be a suffering Messiah and a glorified Messiah. Was it two Messiahs? Or was it one Messiah and was it going to happen all at once? And they struggled and they searched and they inquired of the Lord to try and figure this out, and they couldn't see what you and I see now, and that is, we are in the valley. This has become such a huge image for me personally, in studying through First Peter and all of the sufferings. But again, where do you find this, Pastor? In the Older Testament, if you're going to claim this, I'll give you just a couple of quick verses you might want to note. Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And that's the first mention of Mount Moriah in the Bible. Genesis 22. And that is where the picture, the image of a father prepared to sacrifice his son took place. It was on the same mount that Jesus was crucified. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us a thousand years after Abraham, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Same place, the Mount of Suffering. What else happened on Mount Moriah in the temple on an ongoing daily basis? The suffering of animal sacrifice. Animals suffered there and died there and bled there. All pointing to Jesus who would do the same thing on what I've been calling the Mount of Suffering. So Mount Moriah as a Mount of Suffering, that makes perfect sense. And that's where the picture comes from. What about the Mount of Olives as the Mount of Glory? Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And Zechariah goes on to describe this amazing splitting of the Mount of Olives and a new valley that's going to open up. Some believe that's the Valley of Jehoshaphat where judgment's going to take place. So you've got this Mount of Glory of the glorious return of Jesus. Furthermore, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 12, we know that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. Because it tells us after He ascended that the apostles headed back into Jerusalem, they went across the Kadron from the Mount of Olives, and the apostles were told by the angels who were standing there, He's gonna come back to you the same way He left. He ascended from this mount. He's going to come back to this mount, which is exactly what Zechariah prophesied. So that's where we drew this picture. And again, in Jerusalem, the Kadron Valley between those two mountains is a great picture of the valley that we are in right now that we call the church age. So you've got Mount Moriah, you've got the valley in between, you've got Mount Olivet, the Mount of Glory to the other side, and it's not hard to see that where we stand right now is in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's how we've described it. So keep that picture in mind because you know what you need to get from Mount of Suffering to the Mount of Glory, from Mount Moriah to Mount Olivet? You know what you need to get through the valley? You need shepherding. You need to be shepherded through the valley. I need to be shepherded through the valley. And so Peter deals with this whole shepherding issue. He has a right to, being again a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glories to be revealed. And then he tells these leaders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I want to give you six attitudes here for wise shepherding. We're just going to tick these off real quickly. By the way, while Peter exhorts the elders here, the leaders, the shepherds, this isn't just shepherding information. This is for everybody who's ever put in a position of leadership over another person. You could be a boss. You could learn how to be a better boss by listening to this. A parent who is shepherding their children. A friend who's trying to shepherd his or her friends. Teachers who are shepherding children given to them. Whatever the situation, every one of us in our lives has some level of shepherding going on. So apply this. Six attitudes for wise shepherding. And number one is a wide, wise shepherd is common in the flock. He's common in the flock. Shepherd the flock of God. He uses the word among you. Among you. The word among in the Greek is In. Within you, around you, in you, it's, it's spelled E-N in the Greek. And the right attitude of, sh- of shepherding is, remember, you are a sheep. It's the only place I know of where the sheep are the shepherds. And the shepherds are sheep. And that we all belong to the flock. There, there aren't those who are drawn out and above the flock. Oh, little flock, you're the flock. We shepherd. No, that's not how it works. That's a bad way of looking at it. Sorry. I'll try not to fleece you too much tonight. No, that's not how you look at it. We are all sheep of the common flock, and a wise shepherd always keeps that in mind. Wise shepherd is not puffed up or prideful. He's common with the flock. Psalm 95, verse 7. He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And I love Psalm 100 verse 4 because he goes on and says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. What sheep in His right mind would go into the temple where sacrifice of sheep took place, praising God and thanking Him? Only those sheep who are saved because the one sacrifice was already made by the perfect Passover lamb. Now we can enter in as sheep and we don't have to fear our own sacrifice. Praise the Lord. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. (laughs) And then Jesus, of course, said in Luke 12, 32, one of my favorite verses, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So the most effective, wise shepherding is in, among, and within. It's, it's the parent who's with his or her children. Who's not aloof or, 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 or distant, but, but with and spending time. It's the... It's the teacher who's genuine and relatable. Yes, the teacher may have information the student doesn't have, but the teacher relates to the student, cares about the student, remembers when he or she was a student. Of course, what's different is we weren't sheep shepherds, that is, we are sheep. So we don't remember when we once were like the little flock. No, we are part of the little flock. So we have that in common. It's the CO who says, I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I know how it works. So common in the flock. Secondly, a wise shepherd chooses to shepherd. It says exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. The entire church is is, is run on volunteerism. The healthy, effective church is one that is filled with volunteers. A forced shepherd tends to be a forceful shepherd the person who doesn't want a shepherd feels like they must I've worked with a few of them none of them here (laughs) but I have worked with some guys who were in church leadership because they felt they had the acumen and the business sense and the wherewithal and so by golly they were going to shepherd that church whether the church wanted them to or not and they certainly didn't want to but who else is going to do it if I don't that's not the kind of guy you want shepherding you He's the guy whose rod and staff is not comforting. Because he's clocking sheep over the head right and left. You know what the Bible says? Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. We've used that verse before. I saw something in it this week. I've always thought that when the power of the Holy Spirit falls on a fellowship, on a group of people, on a church, volunteerism is going to increase. And I think that's legitimate. I also know that Psalm 110 is talking about the coming of His kingdom and how in that day of His power, wow, people are going to be coming right and left to serve in whatever way we can. We want, we just want to serve Jesus. But there's a personal side to this that I hadn't seen before. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Listen, in the day that the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you want to do the work. You want to volunteer. You want to serve. You you want to shepherd. You want to lead. You want to do whatever the Lord wants you to do. Man, this is the day of His power. The day of His power in me. And it calls you out. And causes you to just... You want to choose to shepherd. Even if it's shepherding kids in the second grade classroom. You just want to be there. Because God's Spirit of power invites volunteerism. Number three... A wise shepherd is called. This is huge to me. I think it's because it's huge to God. He says, according to the will of God. Voluntarily, according to God or to the will of God, a wise shepherd is called, knows that the Lord has called upon them for this purpose. I'm going to throw something out to you, and, and I don't ever, I've, I haven't done this in the entire time we've been in fellowship. The way we choose shepherds here, people have asked, how do you go about that? The way we do it is we pray. I ask my fellow shepherds, who do you see? Who's shepherding? Who has a heart for our fellowship? And names, we'll just come up, we'll share some names, and and we'll begin to pray. Sometimes we'll approach those individuals. And that's how shepherds get added to our team of shepherds. There's nowhere in the Bible that says they're to be voted on, so we don't do congregational voting. As a matter of fact, the closest you get is Paul telling Titus and Timothy, choose shepherds. You choose them. Put them together. Set it up. So we do it that way, but I will throw this out to you. If you feel called, specifically gentlemen, why not women? Well, because there's no provision. Don't argue with me about this. Just look at Scripture. There is no provision for women to be shepherds. There is plenty of provision for women to do ministry. Plenty of provision for women to even lead in certain ministries in different ways. But when it comes to shepherding, being shepherds, elders, managers, overseers, all of that, it's only men that are addressed in Scripture. And so we just abide by that, not to be sexist, knuckle-dragging Neanderthals, you know, but because that's what Scripture says. And if you want to argue about it, I'll just say, well, yeah, but Eve ate first what was the result of her leadership it was a little fruity Okay, so back to this a wise shepherd is called and what I will say to you all and what I want to put out to you all is if you feel called by God to shepherd at the bridge you need to come talk to me because maybe I'm just unaware of it there could be someone flying under the radar who's doing massive shepherding here and, and I, just, I haven't picked up on it or Glenn hasn't seen it, you know, or, or one of our other shepherds, Mike, hasn't noticed it. And, and, so come and talk to me. And I'll probably hand you a mop and say, why don't you start in the bathroom and we'll go from there. I'm, I'm kidding. But if you feel a calling in your life, a wise shepherd knows that they are being called. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for so long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. And I have found this to be true in my own ministry life: that if you know that you're called, it is the key to faithfulness. The certainty of calling is the key to faithfulness. Because even if you're having a bad time or a rough day or a difficult patch, you know you've been called to this. So whether I want to do it or not, God called me. Now I have chosen it, yes, but He called, and the calling is big. The calling keeps our feet in the game, even at times when we're weary. Make certain of your calling. By the way, just because someone is a leader in the business community doesn't mean he's qualified to lead in the church community. That's not what we're looking for. Business acumen. That can be helpful in a church. And we have several guys who are very smart when it comes to finances and business and all of that. And I'm so thankful. But that's not why they're shepherds. Shepherds, because they were shepherding people. Because they were feeding. Because they were tending the flock. Because there was teaching on their lips. Because they cared about this body. That's why I believe a man is called to be a shepherd. But you must be certain of calling. Number four, a wise shepherd is not covetous he says and not for sordid gain sordid gain is just a fun word to say in Greek ice crocker dose ice crocker dose say that with me ice crocker dose very good you just spoke Greek most of you are saying well that's Greek to me this word sordid gain it's a single word And what it literally translates is greed for gain that degrades moral character. It's not just that you want something or you kind of covet something. Sorted gain, and that's why the word sorted is put in there by the translators. It's the kind of gain that will degrade you. That tears at conscience. It is not good. Gain that degrades moral character. Why would Peter say this? I've always thought that was an interesting thing to stick in there in in, in the teaching or the calling of shepherds and not for sordid gain. Peter, what's driving that? Two names Ananias and Sapphira. Remember the history? It's back in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. They sold some property. Barnabas had sold some property and laid the money at the apostles' feet and said, use it for for the good of the church, and they did. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they say, hey, we can get in on this act. And they sold some property and they told the apostles, yeah, here it is. We're giving it all to the church. But they kept some for themselves. They lied. It wasn't a matter that they kept some for themselves. That was okay. They could keep whatever they wanted. It was their choice. But they lied about it and they literally lied to the Holy Spirit. And so Peter had Ananias brought in. They couldn't find Sapphira. Ananias comes in and Peter says, did you... Did you do this? Oh, no, 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 I, I didn't do Lied. And he said, because you've lied to the Holy Spirit, your soul is required of you. Ananias dropped dead. They're carrying his body out the side door when Sapphira comes in, not knowing what had happened. He asked Sapphira, you, did you do this? And she says, oh, no, no, we didn't do this. Boom, she drops dead. And what we're told, Acts chapter 5, verse 11, great fear came over the whole church. Can you imagine? I mean, a Sunday morning here at the bridge? Someone's dropping dead because they said they tithed and they didn't. I don't know that, if that would increase tithing or decrease membership. That's what I think is probably, everybody would we'd be gone. What a terrifying thing. I mean, think about this in real life. We can joke about it now, 2,000 years later. What was going on in the Jerusalem church in the week following the death of Ananias and Sapphira? They were scared. They were fearful. It says, fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now, Ananias was no shepherd. But even after three decades, I imagine that the fear that came over the whole church was not lost on or forgotten by Peter. I guarantee you, among those who were afraid when this happened, Peter was one of them. Oh yeah, he was the leader. He knew what was taking place. But he watched these two people die in front of him and that must have shaken him to the core. And so now he's saying, if you're going to shepherd, you don't do it for sordid gain. You never think covetously. Don't do it in a way that that benefits you, especially if it's going to tear at your very moral character, not for sordid gain. And we have seen some of the worst fallings in churches among leaders who are doing it for the bucks and pastors who are in it for the bling. It will tear them up. Don't do it. But this raises a question then, well, should pastors be paid at all? Because I happen to know, Pastor Rick, that you are paid by this fellowship. Let me just give you two verses on this. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7 says, "...who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense." Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 9.11, and the whole section is an interesting read, but verse 11 he says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul right there is putting the rubber stamp of approval. Yes, some pastors should be paid. That it is okay for people to draw a salary to to have a living to be provided for to do the work of the ministry of the Word and prayer. Uh, furthermore, Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.17, and says the elders who rule well are considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, I'm not trying to justify my existence here. But he does go on and say, for the Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Don't appreciate being called an ox, but whatever. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the Bible allows for, God allows for both paid and unpaid shepherds. And we have both at the bridge. We have four pastors on staff who are among the shepherds. And then we have another 11, I believe, 10 or 11 shepherds who are volunteer. And all together, we work to shepherd the fellowship here. So a pastor, an elder, a bishop may be paid or may be unpaid. The issue that Peter is getting at here that is so vital is the attitude of the heart. It's why we're doing what we're doing. And Jesus said it best, Matthew 6.24, you cannot serve God and wealth. Number five, a wise shepherd. And I'll give you the list again if you're missing one. A wise shepherd is, number five, compelled. Compelled. He says, not for sort of gain, but with eagerness. I like that. Do you desire? Are you compelled? Do you have an eagerness to shepherd? Then do it. And by the way, if you have an eagerness to shepherd, you're going to shepherd whether you're called one of the shepherds or not. Which is why one of the standards that I hold out is let's look for guys who are already shepherding. And if they're already shepherding, we'll just ask them. It's funny, (laughs) I've had conversations where where it's like we'd like you to to consider, to pray about whether or not God, God may be calling you to be a shepherd at the bridge. And they say, well, what do I have to do? And my answer is always the same what you're doing. And come to a meeting once a month. But you know, just do what you're doing. Just shepherd. Because if you are a shepherd, and if you're eager to shepherd, you're going to be shepherding. Isaiah 26, verse 8 says, Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. I take that a step further and say it's not just shepherds. There ought to be an eagerness in our faith. You find yourself just eager to be where Jesus is, eager to talk about him, hear about him, read and study his word, be in his presence. That's a good thing. A wise shepherd is compelled. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. The NIV translates that compels us because the word means the love of Christ. We are just taken by it, captivated by it. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So a wise shepherd is compelled or eager. And our acts of service, no matter how big, no matter how small, they flow from that eager desire to be with Jesus and to do what he's doing. A wise shepherd is compelled. A wise shepherd is, well, truly, number six, Christ-like. Because if you look at the whole list, Jesus was common in the flock. You wouldn't have known Him from anybody else. He was just, you know, the boy from Nazareth. Joseph and Mary's son, right? He was just among the people. Common like they were common. a, A person within the flock of Israel. Jesus chose to shepherd Jesus was called by the Father to shepherd. Jesus was not covetous. Actually, he was a homeless man himself. Jesus was compelled by love. And so a wise shepherd is Christ-like. Verse 3 tells us, "...nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock." Do we ever see Jesus lording it over? The closest you get is right before His ascension when He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Do for the world as I have done with you. Jesus never lorded it over. Our Creator, God of the universe, never lorded it over. In fact, right after washing 24 filthy feet, and that number is important, Because if it had been me, it would have been 22. I would not have washed the feet of Judas. Jesus washes all 24 feet. And then He says in John 13, 13, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the Teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And the Christ-like shepherd, he's the one who's going to put the flock before his own hide. The Christ-like shepherd, common, chosen, called, not covetous, compelled by love, and Christ-like. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look back at verse 25 of chapter 2. Peter's already said, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Do you see? Do you see how it was so emblazoned in Peter's mind? Jesus saying, do you love me, Peter? Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Tend my sheep. Do you even like me, Peter? Feed my sheep. And Peter never forgot it, and we see it rich and deep in this letter that he writes. The shepherd and guardian of your souls, or right here, what he calls Jesus is the chief shepherd. Speaking again of his second coming, when the chief shepherd appears. That word chief shepherd, it's one word in the Greek, and it literally means first shepherd. First shepherd, first in authority, first in example, first by the way to go through the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side glorified. First shepherd, the one who knows the path through the valley, the one who knows how to lead. And first shepherd is the one who said in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And here Peter says, Oh, when he appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. When Jesus comes back, brothers and sisters, when he returns, rewards will be rendered. Crowns are coming. They're going to be passed out. Well, I don't need a crown. Stop being humble for a minute. You're going to get a crown. Look forward to it. Rejoice in this. The word crown here is used often in the New Testament. It's Stephanos. And it literally means that wreath of glory, the leafy crown that they would wear. They'd be given out to the athletic games and the Olympics. Uh, valiant war heroes would be given a wreath of glory to wear on their heads as a crown. Kings sometimes have the wreath of glory given to them. And 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Which is exactly what he just said. The unfading crown or Stephanos of glory. Now, the Bible talks about at least five different crowns that Jesus is going to give out. Five crowns that will be rewarded at, at His coming. That's exciting to me. Five different crowns, and we're gonna look at them in a study not, not far off, so I'm not gonna do it tonight. But just know this about the crowns that are promised. As with this unfading crown of glory, some have called this the shepherd's crown. Oh, so you have to be an elder at church? No, you, you need to shepherd. Shepherd well. And there is a crown, and I believe that unfading crown of glory will be given to all kinds of people who maybe they never shepherded at church, but they were shepherds in the kingdom. But whatever happens here, these crowns are two things. Number one, for casting. And you know the story, if you've read it, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, shows those 24 elders casting their crowns before the Lord. And they weren't metal gold crowns, you know, clanking on the ground. They were those leafy Stephanos. Unfading Imperishable, so they grab them off the head and they cast them before the Lord, worshiping Him, praising Him. And I don't know how they get him back. Some maybe an angel collects them real quickly and passes them back out, so they're back on their head, so they can do it again. And over and over and over, it's just this giving of thank you, Lord Jesus, and the crown. You know, isn't that like life? Haven't you found that when God gives you an honor of some kind or blesses you in some way, when you turn around and give it back to Him, it's back on your head and it's better than it was before? He just has a way of returning blessing to you. You bless the Lord and you get blessed and you bless the Lord right back and the blessing keeps coming back on your head. It's amazing to me because we have such a gracious Father. But while these crowns are for casting, they are also, get this, number two, the crowns are forever. They're forever. Unfading, imperishable crowns. The word unfading is hamarantinos. Now you don't need to write these words down. I've told you that before. I just like to say them. It's just fun to say Greek. Hamarantinos. But here's the thing, and the reason I mention it. The word hamarantinos comes from the word amaranth. Any of you botanists out there familiar with the amaranth? The amaranth is actually a small green flowering weed. The beautiful little flowers that show up on the amaranth, you can look at Google it. We actually have a name for it. I don't like so much. We call it pigweed. But the amaranth in Greek mythology, where this word comes from hamarantinos in the Greek, the amaranth was mythologically a flower that flowered eternally. So that's where the Word comes from, this this unfading, this, this eternal flowering. Isaiah 40 verse 7 says, The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. And that is true unless the people are born again. Unless the breath of the Lord has now filled us, the Spirit of the Lord breathing life into our hearts when we're born again by the Spirit of God and suddenly we are now prepared to wear the unfading crown. Because we ourselves become imperishable and unfading. And this is the only time, by the way, that unfading is used in the New Testament. That word, homerantinos. Speaking of the unfading, constantly flowering crown that's given. Why is that important? Because we live far too much for this life. And I'm talking to us here tonight. We have a tendency to live for this life, this week, maybe this summer, maybe this year we've got some plans out ahead of us, and we live for this life. This unfading crown of glory is a promise for the Millennial Kingdom because it's not just a crown to wear it's not just a crown to cast in worship but it's a crown that designates authority it's a crown worn by those who who share in the ruling and the reigning of the coming kingdom the millennial kingdom we've read this verse so many times Revelation 5.10 you have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth those who reign wear a crown this unfading crown of glory is a picture, it's a, an insignia, if you will, of the call that God has put on us to reign in the coming kingdom, not now, but then. Let me repeat that. Not now, but then. The unfading crown of glory. What we do in this earth, most of what we do, save in the name of Jesus, is gonna fade. Is not gonna last. And it's not just for the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, it goes beyond that on into eternity. Listen to this. Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Well, that's kind of like a crown. And there will no longer be night, and they will not have the need of light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will get this. They Don't miss this. They will reign Forever. I mean, is that huge to you like it is to me? You know what that means? We're talking all the time about preparing for ruling and reigning in the thousand year reign of Jesus, in the kingdom, the coming kingdom that He's gonna establish here and He's gonna rule out of Jerusalem and we're all over the earth. I called Maui. We're all over the earth, you know, ruling and reigning for Him. We're gonna reign on into eternity. I don't even know what that means. What does that even look like? In the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, they will reign, the Bible says, forever and ever. I'm like, over what? (laughs) Who are we reigning over? I don't know. But we will have the unfading crown of glory. See how awesome that is? There is a future reign. First shepherd is coming. And I believe how we serve now, and I think there are parables to back this up, how we serve now as leaders, or better yet, as servants, will affect our roles and our responsibilities both in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. Parable of the talents. Parable of the minus. You invest what He's given you now, and He says, I'm going to put you over five cities. I'm going to put you over ten cities. So there's this future ruling and reigning with these unfading crowns. Verse 5. So after dealing with the shepherds, He he says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34. He's quoting right there. In other words, don't go grabbing for the crown just yet. Don't worry about the crown. The crown will be given. What are we to do? Clothe ourselves in humility. Don't grab for the crown. There's something that happens to the crown grabbers, and it's not a good thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. It says in verse 2, When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. He says in verse 5, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. In full. In verse 16, he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. We are not to work for the reward right now. We are not to tout ourselves right now because if we do, the accolades we get... See, this is the thing that, about celebrity that is so sad. So many celebrities at the top of their game and recognized all across the world and lauded as amazing people have their reward in full, which means that the coming of Jesus, you already got your reward. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself, he says in verse 6, "...under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you." Which is a nod to Psalm 55.22. In fact, Psalm 55.22 says, "...Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken." cast your anxieties cast your cares upon the Lord and Peter knew something about casting he's a fisherman and the use of the word here is is unique it does speak of casting a net and it's a it's a heave ho it's cast that thing over the side get rid of that thing let it go Peter's got to be remembering he was out casting nets all night long when he should have been looking for Jesus And Jesus had to stand on the shore. And again, I'm not going to revisit John 21, but the story is just beautiful. He's out there working for it again. He doesn't know what else to do with himself. And Peter is out there. Jesus is on the shore. Jesus calls him. And Peter learns, man, cast your burdens. Cast your cares on the Lord. Why does he put that here? Well, I'll tell you one thing. In the context of shepherds that you disagree with, if you're burdened or anxious about it, cast it to the Lord. He'll take care of it. He's going to deal with those who are leading, especially if they're leading wrong. He's got it. And when you are anxious, or, or when you're burdened, or when you're, you're you're fearful, it's not about casting lines or nets. Don't go fishing. Well, I go fishing, because that's where I find my peace. Really? I guess there's a certain degree of peace in the absolute boredom in between catching something, you know. No, it, it, it's, it's casting to the Lord. He's got broad shoulders. He can handle it. He can take the weight of it. And note this, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. If we all had highlighters, I'd say highlight that sentence. Because He cares. What other God cares for His people? In every other religion, it's the other way around. People care for the God. People are concerned for the God. The people try to take care of the God. People have to look after the idol of the God. In this faith, it's the God who cares for the people. The God who looks after us. David said, what is man that you take? Thought of him. Or or the son of man that you care for him. Who are we that you care for us? Psalm 8 verse 4. And Jesus said, John 10 verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, why? Because he's a hired hand and not concerned for the sheep. Literally, it's the same word that Peter uses here. The hired hand who runs away doesn't care about the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me he is the God who cares now again this casting my cares and my burdens and my anxieties why is it here well you might say if if, if I'm going to cast my cares on him that means I have to count on him and perhaps even others around me to care for me who's going to look out for me and back to this whole issue of calling men to be shepherds. Why did God do that? I, I sometimes wonder that. I look at my own self. Why is this my calling, Lord? I have weeks, I mean, like anybody else, where I'm like, I'm just I joke a lot about, you know, less and I together make one really good pastor. <laughs> because I have times where, where I think, yeah, I'm teaching, but. I've, been, I've had to be so focused here, I haven't been able to get over there or, or see this person. Or do, you know? Am I, Why me, Lord? Why, what ca- and we all have those thoughts, don't we? Who am I? You know, and I think about shepherding in the church and you've got to ask the question, why did God set it up this way? Why did He call frail, foolish, fallible men to lead His household? Why shepherds? And here it is. The whole reason why. Listen. Human leadership, good or bad, makes no difference. Human leadership exists to teach us two very godly principles. Whether it's the slave to a master, a Sarah to an Abraham, a Christianos to a crazed Roman Caesar, or even a sheep to to a shepherd over the flock, the two principles are submission and humility. God has given us human leadership in its various forms that we would learn to submit and to be humble. But I don't want to submit! Exactly! That's why He gave us shepherds. But I don't want to submit to that guy! Precisely! That's why you need to. And humility? Humbleness? Well, but I could do a better... Are you so sure? Submission and humility are absolutely vital to our preparation. Our preparation, which once you've given your life to Jesus, is the sole reason you are walking this planet. You are being prepared for your real life. This is not our real life. This is training. This is boot camp. This is preparation for the real life that begins with the thousand year reign of Christ and then continues on into eternity which by comparison this life is nothing. This life is shorter than boot camp. It's just a speck. And during this speck of existence we're being prepared, we're being sanctified in Christ. And part of my sanctification process is acquiescing to my shepherds. And by the way, I I am shepherded too. I'm among the shepherds. Jeff said wisely earlier this morning, he said, there are decisions that we make together that I don't agree with. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We always come to a consensus by prayer and the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It works beautifully. But there are sometimes things we talk about and directions we decide to go, and we're not all on board. And we wait until we're all on board, but even after we're all on board, there's still, maybe there are some things we would do. Glenn, has there ever been something we decided to do you didn't agree with? You don't want to go there. Okay, I understand. <laughs> Mike, have you been on board with every single decision that we've made? No, I didn't think so. That's not the point. I'm the senior pastor of this fellowship for crying out loud. And I hear the voice behind me saying, not walking it, just saying, Submit. Submit, Rick. I surrounded you with these guys for a reason. Submit. Be humble. We have human leadership to teach us submission and humility, which are godly traits. And even wrong decisions by leaders over us don't relieve us of the responsibility to be right disciples. And listen... I'm not talking about immoral decisions, and I'm not talking about heretical decisions. When leadership does something out of step with God, something that's immoral, something that is heresy biblically, you do not follow that. But if leadership makes a decision you just disagree with, submit. Be humble. Not for their sake, but for yours. Because He is preparing us. So we submit to godly leadership. We submit even to one another in Christ. Doesn't Paul say that Ephesians Ephesians 5? Be in submission to each other in Christ. Even before he starts talking to husbands and wives, he tells us all, submit to one another. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And someone might say, okay, if I do that, will that make things right in my church? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe your submission to church leadership will not make things go the way you want it to go. It will continue going down a path that you don't like. You don't personally agree with. But you know what? The more of us who are robed in humility rather than reaching for wreaths of honor, the better for the flock. The better for the whole church if we learn to submit one to another and to humble ourselves under One mighty hand, the mighty hand of God. Remember what he said, that he may exalt you at the proper time, which I've discovered is not according to my schedule. Because the proper time of my exaltation was years ago, and it did not happen. He will exalt you at the proper time, which is according to His schedule, according to His kingdom. And again, I say to you, every single thing, and here's the substance of this letter on suffering, every single thing we face, every position that we are placed in, whether it's under or over another, every pain we experience, every problem, every persecution in this life is preparation for our life in the kingdom and in eternity beyond, that's what we're here for. That's what we are being trained for. So Jesus said, Revelation 2.10, Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 3.11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Know what that means? We don't have our crowns yet. So what am I holding fast to? The robe of humility. And He will give me the crown. Hold fast until he comes. This is where Peter is going with this whole entire last chapter. Strength in the midst of suffering in these last days as we lean toward the coming of Jesus. So how do we do all of this in these last days? Be of sober spirit. Verse 8. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Accomplished? Wait a minute. Suffering being accomplished? We talk about accomplishments. That's something you do intentionally, isn't it? Listen again to what he just said. The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So they're doing it on purpose? They're accomplishing it? Listen. It is sober submission in, through, and by suffering. And it is accomplishing the will of God. Their suffering. Your suffering accomplishes great things in your life, in your heart, in my life, in my heart. And by the way, verse 9, speaking of the suffering of our brethren in the world, That word suffering, this is the only time Peter uses the word pathema for suffering in the whole letter where it's not attached to Jesus. He uses it four times. I told you before, and there's another word he uses eleven times, and that's pascho, and that word also means suffering. And he uses that more, but this word pathema he uses four times. Three times it's always the pathema of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, except here where it's the sufferings of those brethren of ours in the world who are being accomplished. That's interesting. Those in whom suffering is being accomplished by Christ. He uses the same word as the sufferings of Christ. And here, after this letter, filled with the themes of suffering and submission and humility and and, and, following after Jesus, interestingly, for the first time, Peter does a 180 and uses the word resist. Resist! Up until now, it's been submit, submit, submit. Suffer. Suffer. Put yourself under. Slaves under your masters, you know, wives under your husbands, citizens under the the authority. Submit, submit, submit. Resist, he says. Resist. I love that, that Peter here, in mentioning the devil, doesn't debate his existence, he doesn't do an apologetic on Satan. He doesn't even try to explain the existence of evil or the devil in the world. He just recognizes the existence here of a belligerent, bellicose, bellowing bully. That's the devil. A roaring lion? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How do we deal with this roaring lion? And it is very simple. Resist. Just resist. One of the greatest tools Satan has in the world is acquiescence to his will. Those who buy the lie. Resist the roaring lion. How do I do that? Be firm in your faith. Sounds good. How do I do that? In trust. Simply in trust. Just as Jesus, while suffering, chapter 2, verse 23, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Just as Peter says, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what's right, chapter 4, verse 19, entrust is our resistance. Your best resistance to the devil is entrust your soul to God. Resist. Satan is always looking to devour. That's all he does. That's all he wants to do. He's got a ravenous appetite. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have quoted that verse in my household perhaps more than any other. Where there is temptation among my children, where there has been failure among my children, or my wife, clearly not me, but where there have been problems like that, we come back to this. There is only one reason for Satan's existence in this world. To steal, kill, and destroy. Which one of those do you like most? Because that's all he does. The roaring lion who seeks to devour, and yet this devourer cannot eat you up if you resist. In fact, Yaakov chapter 4 verse 7, James, says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. What lion runs away when you say, enough? Wouldn't that be cool? You're out on safari, and you hear the roar, and you look and the lion's charging, and you just go, go home! And off he runs. See, that's what Satan does. He does not deal with resistance. He flees from it. Jesus resisted. In the time of His temptation, he resisted. He quoted Scripture. He entrusted his soul to God. Satan could get nothing on him, and so he fled. That's what the devil does. And his greatest weapon of destruction its very simply, get this, note this, deceit. You could say the devil is just a lion. A lion? Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies? I know it's a lame pun, but I want you to remember it. He is just lying. That's what he does the most. He roars. He shouts. He taunts. He lies. Resist. Just resist. Yeah, but if you do it, resist. Yeah, but if you if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. Resist. You know he's a liar, so resist. Because that's all he can do is lie. He's not going to tell you the truth. He's going to lie. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians 2.27 Put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 And there are so many other verses you tie them all together and all of the equipping against Satan comes down to one thing. Resist. Just don't buy the lie. And verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's where the teaching ends. And at that point, Peter is just summing up saying, listen, Jesus is accomplishing firm faith in all of those who will simply entrust themselves to Him. That's your part. That's my part. Entrusting myself to Jesus. And if I will trust Him, believe in Him, follow after Him, the result is the eternal, imperishable, unfading glory in Christ. Suffering's not such a bad thing when looked at that way, is it? Well, at this point, Peter picks up the pen. Up until now, he probably has just been dictating this letter to Sylvanus. Verse 12, through Sylvanus, who is also Silas, that's the same person, you know, Paul and Silas. Silas ran with Paul, was connected to Paul, involved. We see in the book of Acts, with the ministry of Paul. We see in other of Paul's letters where Silas is there mentioned as Sylvanus, his full Greek name. Peter calls him our faithful brother, for so I regard him. It's interesting to consider, what, what is Silas doing with Peter? He was with Paul. Well, if you timeline it, around the time that Peter's dictating this letter and it's being written down by his secretary, Silvanus, Paul was probably in prison. So Paul's in prison in Rome. Does that stop the ministry of Silvanus? No. Does it even slow Silas down in the least bit? No. He's now off with Peter, continuing in the ministry, which means if someone around you falls, you keep going. If someone around you is detained for whatever reason and unable to continue in their ministry, you keep going. I love the fact that while Paul was in prison, not only did his ministry flourish and the word continue, but the ministry of all those associates and believers and Christianos in the realm just continued to explode. Because it's based on not Paul or Peter, but on Jesus Christ. So Sylvanus is here, now he's shifted over, he's working with Peter, he probably is the secretary of this letter, the faithful brother, for so I regard him. But it's typical to dictate a letter and then to take up a pen and write the final conclusion. And we think that's what Peter's doing here. And he says, I, verse 12, have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. The true grace that will see us through any and all suffering so that... I shall not want. Because He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First shepherd is leading us through the valley of the shadow of death. This shepherd who knows his own. You could even say we're marked. Each and every one of us. We are marked as belonging to Jesus. And He knows you're there. And He knows when you're off missing. And He's leading us through this valley. Verse 13, Peter says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Babylon is probably not Babylon. It's probably Rome. And it's not the last time that Rome will be referred to as Babylon in the Scriptures. Chosen together with you, she who is in Babylon, the church. So this is the church in Rome who is sending greetings through and with Peter, who is with the sufferers throughout Asia. They're all suffering here and they're all going to suffer greatly as the persecution takes off. But she sends you greetings, so does Mark. There's Mark again. Mark who was well rejected by Paul so he ended up working with Barnabas now he's working with Peter and we think the entire gospel of Mark is really the summation of Peter's preaching in Rome as Mark wrote it down so they're all working together same team you know we don't see the Baptists and the Methodists and the Bridgeites and the Living Wordites and all the different one team I remind you in the name of Jesus Christ we are still one team we're still working for the same cause the same Christ And then he says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. I'll let you interpret that how you need to. But he says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. And here at the close of this beautiful letter on sharing in the sufferings of Christ, Peter ends with peace. Shalom. Peace and suffering, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know how far it is across the Cadron Valley to the Mount of Olives? That valley we've been comparing to the Valley of the Shadow of Death. The Bible doesn't say that the Cadron is the Valley of the Shadow of Death, but it, again, is a great picture. As we're being led across these 2,000 years by First Shepherd up to the Mount of His Glory, do you know how far that valley is? It's about half a mile. But it's not called a half a mile in the Bible. Actually, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it's referred to, I love this, as a Sabbath day journey. So the next time you think you're struggling in the valley of the shadow of death, remember, it's just a Sabbath day journey. And you have a choice. We can rebel against God and we can strive in the valley. Or we can walk with Sabbath rest. Even in suffering with Jesus who said... Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Oh, precious Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the affirmation again and again that you are, Lord Jesus, our shepherd, our Good shepherd and that we don't walk alone and we're not striving through this place. And it's so good to be reminded and refreshed. You do restore our souls. You, you've done it tonight. And You feed us and You lead us. You water us by Your Spirit. Thank You, Jesus, for never abandoning us. And thank You for the promise from Your own lips that You would be with us to the very end of the age. And you have not failed in that, Lord. I pray You'll draw our eyes to You, our Great Shepherd. May we cling to You, trust in You, and simply follow after You until that day comes, and we know it's not long, when we will walk up the side of the Mount of Glory where Your feet stand, and we will see the glory as You return. Praise Your name, Lord. We love You and we thank You for teaching us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.